0: During Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. She was engaged to marry a man named Joseph from the family of David. Her name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, "'Greetings, the Lord has blessed you and is with you.'" But Mary was very startled by what the angel said and wondered what this greeting might mean. The angel said to her, "'Don't be afraid, Mary, God has shown you his grace. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of King David, his ancestor. He will rule over the people of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. God can do anything.
1: Uh, no, just to echo off of you know the kids ministry workers up here this morning, um, <clears throat> Dela and Felicia and, and so many others who serve back there. If you're one of those who serve back there, thank you. Grateful for you. You have an impact on, on my family and my son and I'm just really, really grateful for you. I, I see that in his life. See him as he's growing, uh, coming home with questions. He loves to come to church and his dad's the pastor. So that's a real positive for me. Um, yeah, it's just a great choice, so thank you. And if you're interested in serving, there's Trisha. Trisha, thank you for all you do. And um, if you're interested in serving, go, go talk to Trisha. Um, I know she'd love to, to plug you in somewhere, potentially. Hey, I wonder, how do you keep time? You know, thinking back in, over time, how do you keep time? You're remembering an event. You go, oh, that happened, I think. I think that was the year the McDonald's got built. You know, maybe it's something like that or it was, it was the year this happened or I think maybe uh, George Bush was president. Um, I don't remember. You know, we kind of do that more and more all the time, don't we? Like even now, is that pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? Like that's how, that's a major accounting of time anymore. We might uh, date a time uh, something happened by saying, oh, it took place in the year the Cubs won the World Series. And everybody's gonna know you're talking about only one of two times, probably for the rest of history. And I'm a Cubs fan, unfortunately. Uh, you know, part of the drama of the story at Christmas is that Luke, we're gonna see this morning, when he opens up the text, he, he opens uh, where we're gonna be this morning, Luke chapter two, with a reference to history to tell us about the time some of these things happened. And uh, what we're gonna see is that In history, God is orchestrating all things. He's in full control. We'll unpack more of that here in a bit. But with with that kind of primer, let me pray, and then we're gonna jump into Luke chapter two. Really glad you're here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you are in control of all things and that you have your hand in all things, orchestrating them for our good and for your glory and for our joy. So uh, Holy Spirit, would you impress upon our hearts your goodness today and uh, help me even as I teach your word. Teach me, give me words that they might be your own and uh, encourage us with, with your goodness and with your love and with who you are. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him, amen. If you got your Bible, open up to Luke chapter two. We've been... Uh, studying uh, the Christmas account this year through the eyes of Mary. Mary, a young girl. Mary, who would have been probably anywhere from 12 to 17 years old when the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, hey, you're gonna give birth to the promised Messiah. And uh, her whole world was turned upside down. Well, we pick up the story this morning where Mary is about nine months pregnant. And uh, she's... uh, waiting for that day to come when she's gonna give birth. And we read this, Luke dates it for us in time by referencing a leader. He says, in those days, first off in those days, first of all, references what happened just prior in the text, John the baptizer was born and uh, other events that he had spoken of in that first chapter. He says, but in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now he's giving us a moment in time when this happens. And and his decree was that all the world should be registered. Now, before we jump in and start looking at things this morning from Mary's perspective again, I wanna give you a little perspective on Caesar Augustus and who he is. Because he paints a a radical contrast with Jesus who is about to be born. Uh, Caesar Augustus, he was uh, born Gaius Octavius. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and again, those names might not mean much to you, but maybe you've heard of Julius Caesar. And after he was assassinated, uh, Caesar Augustus, Octavius, uh, worked his way into power. He kind of clawed his way there. He defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra and then through his incredible genius, the guy was brilliant. And he had a personality that was just magnetic at winning people and great, greatly skilled in diplomacy. He, he rose to power and gave the Roman Empire, a a solid foundation that would endure for centuries. He reigned for 40 years and he reigned over a pretty peaceful Roman Empire, which was brand new for them in the previous centuries. Maybe uh, if you're a history buff, you may have heard of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Well, uh, Augustus was the guy really who brought a lot of that about by his intelligence, by his diplomacy. He was a master at civil politics. And throughout his reign, he reformed the tax system and the transportation system in Rome and the Roman police and fire services and the city's architecture. He was an incredible guy. Now, as we're thinking about him, I thought maybe this image might be helpful. Um, A graphic designer by the name of, I gotta get her name here, Becca Saladin she's a graphic designer and kind of her side project, her passion hobby is this website called Royalty Now. And what she does is she takes old pieces of art and studies history and then tries to make a drawing or a picture, a Photoshop image of what that person might look like today if they were alive today. And thankfully with Caesar Augustus, there were so many statues made of him and all of them look very similar um, that it was a, Pretty easy task, but that maybe puts some flesh on this guy we're talking about. He was a real person in history. And he was the first Caesar, the first ruler of Rome to be called Augustus, the great. He had a month named after him, August. Uh, But it also means holy or revered. And up to that time, that title, Augustus, the, the only persons who got that title were the gods, the Roman gods, And so essentially what's happening here is when Caesar Augustus rises to power and the Roman Senate gives him that name of Augustus, they're declaring him and they start ushering in this time of declaring the emperors of Rome to be gods. In fact, one historian says that when Augustus died, there were men who comforted themselves, reflecting that, well, Augustus is a God and gods don't die. But here's the deal, this guy, Augustus, Octavius, He was a man who uh, supposedly became a God and a savior bringing great peace to all of Rome. I mean, the peace that he brought was incredible. It seemed to have no end. There was a, a temple called the temple of Janus in Rome, also known as the temple of war. And when Rome was at war, the doors were opened. And when Rome was at peace, the doors were shut. Well, the doors remained shut for about 40 years, thanks to this guy. He was a man who became God and savior of Rome. But little did he know, God was actually becoming man to be the savior of the world. And it's during his reign that these things take place. Uh, See, he brought a lot of peace, but it was kind of a dark peace. It was more like a, one one, uh, commentator calls it like Hitler's peace. You know, I mean, if you spoke out against him or raised your voice, if you're a man, woman, boy, girl, it didn't matter, you better be looking over your shoulder because he ruled with a fist. And so one of the things in order to maintain that rule, here we read that he put out a decree for a census to be taken. Well, this would be to ensure his taxation and to ensure his militarization of Rome, that he had recruits to be in the army and to maintain the peace of Rome then Luke gives us another clue. This was the first registration when Quinerius was governor of Syria. And what happens is then that all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, Roman law didn't say you had to go to your hometown, like your ancestral town to be registered for a census. But, but one of the genius of Octavius and, or Augustus, whichever name you wanna use for him, was that uh, he would allow, and the Romans would allow like territories they conquered to kind of, just do their own thing to some degree, as long as they were compliant with Rome. And in Judean and Israel, Israeli culture, not Israeli, but Israel culture, um, they would, people would go back to their ancestral home for the census. And so that's what's happening here in Israel, in Judea. Uh, so they went back to their own town. And, and Joseph, we remember him, Mary's betrothed. He also went up from Galilee, he went up, not because he's going north, but because he goes up in elevation to Bethlehem. Whenever you read up or down in the Bible, it's called an elevation. From the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So he was going back to his ancestral home to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. See, Mary and Joseph were, betrothed, which is like engaged, only it's really more like being married just without fully consummating the marriage. And so Joseph is going back to Bethlehem to his ancestral home for this census. And it wasn't like it was a planned thing, like there was just this census whenever. It was just Augustus declared decree, and so now it's time to go. You gotta go do it by this date. And so all of their plans were interrupted. Mary's nine months pregnant. Think about that. And it's not like they had an interstate that you could hop in and drive that 70 to 100 miles depending on how the road wove down to Bethlehem from Galilee, from Nazareth. No, they had to walk. Ladies, some of you who are moms, who God's blessed you with kids, can you imagine walking that distance? Nine months pregnant? If you're lucky, Joseph was able to secure a camel or a donkey for you to ride on I mean, that would be so much more comfortable, wouldn't it? da da And all these things happen, and it makes me think that the stress of that journey leads to what Luke writes next in verse six when they get to Bethlehem. While they were there, they made it there, the time came for her to give birth. You know, I oftentimes a woman is pregnant and and maybe the baby's taking a little while. You might do some things to try to coax it out, you know? Move around, walk around, go for a walk, go for a car ride, do something. Mary got the great privilege of being able, thanks to Caesar Augustus, walk 70 to 100 miles or ride on a camel and bump her way along so that baby Jesus would come. Can you imagine what that was like for her? She had to be terrified. She's a brand new mom. She has no kids. She doesn't understand entirely what all this is gonna mean for her yet. But in all of it, God is orchestrating all things. I mean, from great emperors like Augustus to poor peasants like Mary and Joseph. They were young, incredibly poor, and now they have to make this journey. But here's what I want you to see. He's, he's orchestrating all these things to fulfill his plans. See, Augustus didn't have any clue that when he called for a, a, a census to be taken that this young, no-name, nobody couple in Hicktown, Nazareth, of Galilee, would uh, start walking towards Bethlehem for the census or riding a donkey or whatever it looked like, And that that would be the fulfillment, what would come to pass because of that decree would be a fulfillment of prophecy from hundreds of years prior. See, they they got there, the time came for her to give birth and then she gave birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn notice her firstborn, she had more sons after this. I misspoke last Sunday or the Sunday before. I think I said um, there were maybe two or three brothers of Jesus mentioned in scripture. There's actually four that are named little brothers of his that were born after him and sisters, plural. So in other words, uh, Mary and Joseph at least had a family of seven at some point. But this first one, man, it was, it was an incredible incredible scene here. They make that whole journey, they, they give birth and lay them in a manger. Now, when I was a little boy, my great grandma Sadie had a manger scene that we'd set up every year. And that was like my, my favorite, one of my favorite things about Christmas is going over to grandma's house, helping her set up the manger, you know, this little cute A-frame wood structure that sat on the coffee table and you'd arrange all the guys and set them up in the manger. And I always thought that was the manger. But really, it means feeding trough. The manger is the place where the animals ate from. It was probably made of stone, maybe a couple feet long, maybe about a foot deep, and with something kind of hewn out in the middle of it. So after the baby was born, they laid him in the manger because it was the closest thing to a bassinet they had. And he was wrapped up in swaddling cloths, in in cloths that uh, maybe you swaddled your kids when they were really young, maybe that first week or so, just gave them comfort like they were still in the womb, you know? And so she does that with Jesus and wraps him, but except the, there's some commentators, this is, who knows, speculation, just use your imagination here again, that those swaddling claws may have been the ones used uh, to swaddle uh, newborn sheep and lambs when they were born. And so maybe, because they, the ma- they were in the, see, the manger was the feeding trough. The place they were at was like a cave, where the cattle were kept. And, and maybe those cloths that were used to swaddle the sheep were actually used to swaddle not just those lambs, but the lamb of God. And she lays him there in the manger. I wonder, what was that scene like when they got to Bethlehem? Think about it again from the perspective of Mary. First off, back up a little bit. She's nine months pregnant and this, this decree comes out and Joseph's like, uh, I, I gotta go to Bethlehem. Do you wanna come? <laughs> And she comes along. She's like, I'm nine months pregnant, but okay. And they make the journey and then they get there and he tries to find a place for them in the inn, but there's, there's no place. And it could be that there's really no place because all the people were there or that the innkeeper just wanted to make a little extra money because there were all the people there and clearly Joseph and Mary did not have the cash. And so what are they gonna do? I, they don't know. Well, maybe they go and they they go to park the donkey and they decide, hey, let's just stay here. And they stay in the cave where the animals were kept. And then the time comes for her to give birth. You know, she's she's going into labor in the midst of all of this. And what does Joseph, did did he have to shovel some road apples out of the way for Mary to lay down? What was it like? Pretty incredible, incredible scene. And I mentioned that God had been orchestrating all these things, right? Because where did they go to thanks to Caesar? Thanks to Augustus? They went to Bethlehem. And while Augustus was incredibly powerful and had great authority, even was considered to be a God, Mary and Joseph were nobodies. And the place they went to was nowhere. Uh, The prophet Micah, 700 years prior writes, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, tiny little town, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. God orchestrated all these things to fulfill his plans that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It's phenomenal. How many of you uh, picked the place where you were gonna be born? Some people say, well, Jesus, he just fulfilled all the prophecies, you know. He just he just worked and orchestrated his life in such a way that he could just fulfill them. Well, I don't know how he did this one. All of this, friends, is God's sovereignty. His control. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that God's sovereignty just refers to his absolute right to do all things according to his good pleasure because he's God and he can do whatever he wants according to his good pleasure. Uh, Colossians says this, Paul writes this about Jesus. He says, for him, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones uh, like that of Caesar Augustus or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, for his purposes. See, he's orchestrating all things to fulfill his plans. Job, when, uh, when God confronted him, Job repents and he says, God, I know you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs says, the name of the Lord's a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he's safe. And then, you know, when I'm saying all this though, you might be thinking, okay, Josh, so you're saying God orchestrates all things to fulfill his plan. So that means, are you saying like all the junk in my life, you're saying that's God's fault? No, but here's what I'm saying, that God can orchestrate that in such a way that he brings about good. I think of it this way. God can take the junior high, middle school orchestra. You've been to those concerts? And make it sound like the Chicago Symphony. He can orchestrate those things for good because he's fully sovereign and fully in control. But Paul says it this way. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say those things are good. He doesn't. But if you trust him, he'll work it for good. And you may not see that good until you see Jesus face to face, but it'll be good. And he'll work it for good. He orchestrates all things to fulfill his plan. And his plan, friends, is for good. His plans are of good for all people, for all people's, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, everywhere. That's his plan. With the thought of his goodness in mind, then let's, let's jump back into the story this morning. Uh, verse eight, Jesus had been born. They, they swaddled him up. They laid him in the feeding trough and Mary's probably ready just to take a nap and rest. Joseph probably too, for that matter. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Well, the shepherds uh, keeping watch over their flock, if they're keeping watch at night in the middle of a census when everybody's supposed to be traveling somewhere, guess where they rank likely on the shepherd totem pole? Pretty low, pretty low. In fact, uh, uh, there's good reason to think that very possibly these guys are um, young boys in the family, especially if it's a family affair, maybe junior high aged out watching the flocks at night. Well, they're out there watching. I wonder what they're doing. Are they telling stories? Are they razzing each other? Are they picking on one of them? Are they, did one of them fall asleep and so they're writing something on his face like at camp? Like, what are they doing? And then suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And like every other time we read of an angel showing up, they were filled with great fear. Imagine that. They're out in the middle of nowhere in the dark, maybe a fire going and whoosh, the glory of the Lord shines around them. And then the angel starts speaking and we're not told which angel this is, but it sounds like Gabriel. Cause again, he says, fear not. That's what he said to Daniel, that's what he said to Zechariah, that's what he said to Mary. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. God's bringing good for everyone through this baby. You know, even if you never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, become a follower of his, you know, his coming is good news for you. the the good things that have happened in our world because of the life of this little boy that was born that night. This is good news for everyone and it's great news for those who would trust Christ because uh, for unto you, the angel tells them, this day is born in the city of David. They're like, oh, Bethlehem. I know that place that's close by, who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah and God. The part that he was God maybe have glossed over their minds. They might not have caught that, but they caught the fact that he was the Messiah and he's the savior of all. It's good for all people. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your intellect, the color of your skin. It does not matter. Jesus came for you. He loves you. He died for you. And if you turn to him, he would save you. Uh, Peter says there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God so loved the world, friends, loved us all that he sent, he gave his only son so that whoever believes, whoever wouldn't perish. This is good news for everyone. And in this, God's love was made manifest that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. That's why the angel says, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For all the people. Do you know what the angel's saying here? He's saying, God's bringing, I'm bringing you good news. Do you know why? Because God God himself, he is altogether good. He's good. And all that he does is good. Uh, The Lord is good to all, the psalmist writes, and his mercy is over everything that he's made. Again, with that thought of God's goodness, let's keep reading the story here. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you, fellas. You're gonna find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. They're like, okay, that's not so strange. He's gonna be lying in a manger, in a food trough. The one the horses and lambs and all the cattle eat out of. They're like, now that's unique. I've never seen that one before. He's gonna be easy to find. They're gonna know when they find him, right? And then suddenly with that angel, a multitude of the heavenly host of the heavenly army, thousands of angels show up and start praising God in this moment. Now if if my imagination and my conjectures right that some of these guys are young junior high age boys they are freaking out at this moment right I mean the sky lights up and and they're singing or saying maybe singing glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased I don't know how long did this go on is this this the the cliff notes of what was said and what was and when the angels went away from them into heaven, we're not told how exactly they, they leave, but they leave, maybe just disappear. What did the shepherds do there for a little bit? Did they just stare at each other? Did you see that? Was one of them like the kid in uh, The Incredibles? That was totally awesome! Or no, totally wicked, he says, right? And they just freak out. Well, in any case, finally they start talking, and they go, "We got to go to Bethlehem. We got to see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us." And so they take off, and they went with haste, and they found Mary, and they found Joseph, and they found the baby lying in the manger, in the feeding trough, just like the angel had said. All right, let's skip back over to Mary. You're Mary. Uh, you're brand. You just gave birth among all the animals. It kind of stinks. You're in pain. Your baby, who's the savior of the world, is lying in the feeding trough for all the animals and you're just ready to rest. You've had a long journey and you're exhausted. And then suddenly, a bunch of shepherds show up in the birthing room. (laughs) I wonder what they do with their sheep. Did they just abandon him and leave him, or did the sheep all follow? It would make sense if they did. So maybe these guys come rushing in and uh, she just wants to take a nap and doesn't really feel all that decent in the moment anyway to be seeing visitors yet. And here they are. They found him and when they saw it, they, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child in the moment was Mary a little like, what is going on? Who are you? Can, can, we have, can you leave us alone? But then they start telling her why they're there. And I imagine this begins to confirm in Mary's heart, all the things that she had experienced, all the things she had been told by the angels, all the things she learned from Elizabeth. And all who heard what these shepherds told them, they wondered at it. It was such a fantastical thing. Did they, did they wonder because they didn't know if they really believed these guys because they're shepherds or did they wonder because they wanted to know what is God doing? What's he up to? We don't really know, but here's what we do know. We know for Mary, when Mary heard these things and all these things happened, she treasured up all of them pondering them in her heart. Luke writes this about Mary a couple times where she treasures up things and ponders them in her heart and thinks on them. Maybe Mary's a little more of an introvert and so that's just kind of her MO. But I I think God included this in the text for a reason because it kind of begs the question for me and for you, what, what are... What are you treasuring up in your heart? See, when Mary treasured these things up, I think she's treasuring up the incredible things God had done for her. She was a nobody from nowhere and God picked her to be the mother of the Messiah. Of all the women throughout history, it was her. She sang a song about it when she saw Elizabeth, remember? She said, my soul magnifies the Lord, chapter one, verse 46. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, he's done great things for me. And she treasured these things in her heart. What are, you treasuring in your, what are you treasuring up in your heart? What are you filling your heart with? What are you dwelling on? For Mary, I think it's fair to say she was treasuring up the fact that God is altogether good. Nahum says this, the Lord is good and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I think for Mary, treasuring these things up helped her through those days when it was days of trouble. God used that to sustain her. When she saw her son be mocked and ridiculed and abandoned and murdered on a cross. When so many other heartaches happened in her life, It was the fact that she trusted God and his his goodness that she was able to make it through it, it sustained her. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And she could remember that God orchestrates all things to fulfill his plans of good for all people, including her, everywhere. But let's come back to you and me. What are you treasuring up in your heart these days? You know, uh, for many of us, uh, we can get caught up treasuring, treasuring up our griefs and our grievances rather than God's goodness and grace. It's a lot easier, isn't it? To treasure up ways that I'm frustrated with life or things that have gone wrong for me or the ways that that person has hurt me. Or, and I can treasure those things up. And then, you know what happens? When I treasure those up, it fills my heart. And when I get bumped guess what spills out whatever I've been treasuring? And so oftentimes if I get myself caught or if any of us do, we get caught up in our stinking thinking, treasuring up griefs and grievances and and all those sorts of things, um, it leads to anger, which might turn into bitterness and eventually lead to some anxiety and ultimately to despair. And then when the day of trouble comes, it's just more trouble. But the reality is friend, you and I, we have agency. And like Mary, I'm not saying Mary's perfect, but I'm saying we're told here that for reason, that she treasured up these things in her heart. So we too have agency to treasure up good things of who God is in our hearts. It doesn't negate the bad things. It doesn't negate the ways we've been wronged. It doesn't negate all the junk in life because of our own sin, other people's sin, and just sin in general. But we have agency of what we're gonna hold on to and treasure. Um, uh, there's a saying, what you think about is often what you'll bring about. <laughs> you think about God's goodness, you tend to, see it more and more. If you change the way you look at things, things begin to change. And for some of you, you, you for all of us, we need to think about God's goodness, but for, for some of us, maybe most of us, this is a, a Herculean task to change our thinking on these things. I mean, we've been treasuring up garbage for years, maybe decades. And our initial response to people and everyone and everything might, every situation, uh, has turned to cynicism and critique. and So where do you start? Well, let me challenge you with a couple things here as we wrap up that you can take with you this week and throughout the rest of this year. It's not very long, only a couple weeks, maybe carried into new year. But ways you can do this, I mean, for goodness sake. First off, start with scripture. Meditate on it. I meditate on it, I don't mean sit in the corner, you know, fold your legs and hmm. I just mean like, like think about it, slow down, consider it. You're like, well, where do I start? Well, I'll give you a, a passage of scripture, just one verse that maybe you could start with over the next couple weeks. And you probably already know it. You've heard it, I'm guessing anyway. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Begin to meditate on that. Begin to meditate on, oh, give thanks to the Lord. You know, the antidote in the Bible to all kinds of ills in our lives is thankfulness, that attitude of, of gratitude. Sorry, I'm not trying to be you know, a, a rhymer up here. But it, it's really true that when we have the hearts of thankfulness to God for things, it, it changes the way we go about life. And, and so if I'm meditating on this verse, I'm thinking... Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks. Josh, give thanks, be thankful. I start to think about things I can thank him for. Even when life's hard, there's things to thank him for. And then what I try to, then what starts to happen is when I meditate on it, it begins to sink into my heart and my mind. And so then this week when I get the flat tire and I'm sitting on the side of the road and I wanna just throw everything in the ditch and kick the truck, I hear, Josh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, right? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can, I can still be thankful. For he is good, his steadfast love, just meditate on that steadfast, he's unchanging. I change all the time, God never changes. He's steady and steadfast. That's his love for me. Just, just slow down, meditate on scripture. Just take this one verse, write it down, stick it on the dash of your car put it on a sticky note on your mirror, meditate on it. Second thing I would commend to you is look for good. Always look for it. Uh, The Puritans called this the judgment of charity, to have gracious assumptions about people and their motives and to look for what's good. You know, if you look for good, you're looking for God. That might sound weird, but let me explain. Jesus' little brother, James, writes this. He said, every good, and get, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So, so this means when I, when I look for good and I realize, oh, there's good in that person, there's, there's actually some good in this situation. There was good in that interaction, whatever that is. I can go, yeah, and every good thing comes from God. So when I'm looking for good, it it trains my mind to look for God and to seek after him. So look for good, always, always. And then last but not least, make a list. Make a list of some of the things that you've been meditating on that God's shown you. Make a list of some of the good things you've, you've seen. It might be all kinds of different things. It might be a list of good things that, that you just happen to, to notice now. It might be a list of good things about God, like his steadfast love that never changes. It, it, it might be a list of ways that he's been good to you. Like Mary says, he's done great things for me. How's he been good to you this week? The list of scripture you've memorized. It, and then don't just make a list, but review it. And be like the psalmist in Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he's done for me. You may have, uh, some of you may have heard this verse uh, from a more traditional translation and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget the good things he's done for you. Now again, this doesn't negate the garbage. This doesn't negate the hard times. They're still hard. It's still really hard. It still really hurts. But it begins to change your perspective. It begins to change you, the power of God's Word and the power of His Spirit. And you can begin to do actually what the Bible says to rejoice in all circumstances. So that's my challenge to you this week, into this next year. Uh, with that, I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come forward and. We're gonna call it a morning. Sound good? Let me pray.